right. So it is a blessing to be here. Um, it is a blessing to be here um, on your mission Sunday and know that there are churches that still prioritize missions, churches that still care about that. And I think in a world where churches are becoming more insulated and isolated, it is a wonderful thing to see a real church still exist and still prioritize local and global missions. Um, the, that is essentially that work, the lifeblood of the church. And, you know, I am not one who tends to lean towards hyperbole, but I do believe that we actually are in a critical junction in the history of the church. I think that we are at a pivotal moment that we will all remember these times and these moments. And I think we're going to actually remember what did my church do in that moment? You know, as I said, as the church is becoming more insulated and isolated, I don't think that, you know, that the scriptures themselves are failing, nor do I think that God is any less sovereign. I believe that everything that happens is in the sovereign will of God, including a pandemic. But more than anything, what I think it has realized is that many places are not actually churches. They're a gathering of people with similar interests. And what many of them did during this time is they went back to the place that they are most comfortable, which was home. And so in the moments where we had opportunities to share about missions and really live our missions out, you know what many churches did? They went back to their place of comfort. I'm actually reminded of the Puritans during a similar pandemic, if you will. You know what the preachers were doing when the people were getting out of the town? They went back to the sick. They went back in the city. They put themselves on the front lines, and they didn't spare their own lives so that the gospel could be shared. Today, we're going to be talking about the church as community. And so I do think that we are at a point that the nature of the church, if the true believers do not stand with force, against the worldview that exists, against liberalism in our society, if we don't stand against it, then the nature of what the church is will be changed forever. That's where we are. So in that way, we are at a critical juncture. Now, the beautiful part of working through books of the Bible is that it gives us a certain amount of context. So in my church that I preach, we have been preaching through Acts for two years. I am the dictionary definition of an expositional preacher. So, because I'm more familiar with Acts than anything right now, we'll be coming out of the book of Acts. And we're going to look at some things that I, I think we should address, and I think providentially that God has given us this sermon to understand what it means to be a church and a church that is a part of a community. And so, again, allow me for another moment of hyperbole, but I do think this may be one of the most important messages that I've ever preached for our church, for your church, but the church universal. And we get done, I'm hoping that you will see that it has been a challenge for all of you as well. So turn me, if you will, to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, we're going to start at verse number 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, 
recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word, God. This is just another opportunity for us to understand that, God, as much as we think we know the call of Christianity, it extends so much further than ourselves. It is so much more uncomfortable than we think. It lays us so much more bare before you than we could imagine. And so, God, as we hear this sermon today, as we look in your word, God, help us see that the call of the gospel is fulfilled in us. It's fulfilled in us, forsaken our lives, because inevitably Jesus forsook his for us. And he credited us with his righteousness. So help us see that in Jesus' name. Amen. And so one of the things that we see here that happens in this text is that we actually see that Paul is leaving from Athens and he arrives here in Corinth. And so if you don't know about that, that would have been roughly about a 40-mile journey between those places. But it's significant because it mentions here that Claudius had actually issued an edict that anybody, all of the worshipers in Rome who had worshipped Christus, that being Christ, actually had to leave the area. And this is significant, I think, because it does actually show that there is a different context when we read about the persecution of believers, whether that's the persecution of believers in other countries or the persecution of believers in the Bible. There's a different context for these believers that we perhaps don't face in our Americanized version of Christianity. You know, our safe, comfortable, clean version of Christianity that we often enjoy. And so it makes me ask just some pressing questions just to begin this sermon with for you to think about and think about, you know, how we experience church in America. Maybe you've thought like I thought subconsciously. Why do you think that we believe that Christians in other countries are stronger than we are? Why do they seem better bonded? Why do we feel like Christians in the Bible seem to have a better bond, a closer relationship with God than we do? Now, one of the reasons I think it is, is I think because they have endured something together that, quite frankly, we haven't had to endure. I got a message one time from a friend on Facebook. This is actually pretty recent. And she said, do you think that Um, in the grand scheme of things in eternity, that the Christians in other countries who have to suffer persecution are going to be viewed as better Christians than we are, stronger Christians. I said, no, but I think we should at least ask the question, why do they suffer persecution? So the reason we don't suffer persecution is because we haven't given anyone a reason to persecute us for our faith. We're safe. We're comfortable. We're easy to get along with. We don't press the issue. I said, but for those Christians, it's a matter of life and death. Most of us won't even stand for the truth in the prospect of death, yet in the face of it, they declare, for God I live, for God I die. And yet if someone sits in the wrong seat in the service, then we have a come apart. (laughs) 
When we look in the Bible or even at other Christians in other countries, we have to realize that we do see that they have been under much more oppressive rule and leaders than we feel like we have. And so because of that, they view community as a necessity. You know how we tend to view community? As a burden. Because for us, we can go home and be safe. We're not relying on a network of Christians to go to in order to survive. And so when we have to come to church or we have to do prayer meetings or men's meetings or small groups, we roll our eyes and we go as if it's God honoring. When there are literally Christians all over the world who are dying to have what we have. I want to give you some background on what kind of city Corinth would have been so that you can understand just how important it was that those believers there would find one another. It was like the major port city as it set off the coast of the Mediterranean and it was the hub of all commercialism and business. There were about 200,000 people who lived in Corinth, which is a huge amount of people during that time. The uh, commentary that I work through Acts with actually mentioned that if you're looking at a comparable city for us, it would probably be like Las Vegas, full of sin, right? Secular worldview. So as Paul is getting there, he's not unaware that there is a great deal of immorality. There's a great deal of even competing worldviews and values with Christianity, And so when he sets sail there and he lands there, the most important thing for him to do, the first thing that he does is he's, I I, got to find the other Christians. (laughs) Where are the believers in a city of sin with competing worldviews? I need to find Christians. How is he able to do that? Let's look back at our text. It says, Paul went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. How was he able to find another Christian? There was obviously a network of believers here that he knew about. But there's also another sovereign way that he probably knew where the believers were. If you remember during Paul's conversion, when he was on the road to Damascus, he was headed with letters of extradition to find where the Christians had settled in order to bring them to Jerusalem to persecute them. And that's when Jesus meets him where he is. So it's quite likely he still has those letters and he knows sovereignly where the believers are. And that's where he's going. But there also is probably a network of believers. And so he's directed to Aquila who had recently migrated to the area. And that brings us to our first point today. The Christian community is broad. The Christian community is broad. Within this network, while 40 miles doesn't seem to be that long... There was was a vast cultural difference here than where he had come from. Paul arrives and there are Christians. And I know we actually tend to think that the Christian community is small. And while it isn't the majority, what God has done for us is actually quite amazing. And it really goes back to the establishment of the church itself. If you remember in the Bible, when God saved those first believers and when they all started to speak, none of them spoke in their own language. He had divided the languages and they all heard it in their own language. But they were speaking languages that they actually not learned. 
What that was showing us from the origination of our faith is that this is not a faith that is secluded to any people group. It is not for one people. It is not for one race. race. It is not for one ethnicity. Everybody can be a part of this group. There is really no other community that is like the Christian community. Now, don't get me wrong. The Christian community is exclusive, right? It is exclusive as it should be where the only way in this community is that you have to be a blood-bought believer who believes in Jesus Christ, who has been redeemed not by your own personal works, but by the substitutionary atonement, the works of Jesus, which have been credited to your account, not of any goodness of your own have you been saved. That's the only way in. Okay? So in that sense, only the people who have been born again are part of that community. But this is the the tricky part. But anybody can be born again. Literally anybody. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter the depth of your sin. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter where you are in life. Anybody can be a part of the Christian community. There is literally no other community that exists like that. It is the most unique community we've ever seen. And it's even more unique in this way that almost every other religion except for Christianity has had the majority of its believers stay localized where it started. Except Christianity. Because if we are believers and we understand the nature of our salvation, then there is no way we could restrict it to a certain neighborhood, a certain economic level, a certain race, a certain geographic, we can't. The gospel just doesn't work that way. When you truly believe the nature of the gospel, you tell it to as many people as you can. In fact, if you really understand the depth of the gospel, if there are people that you don't know, that you know that you do not like, there are people in different situations, then you know the greatest remedy that any of us could have for our condition is not a handout from the government, is not us trying to pay their way through college, or those things can be nice and work sometimes. We all have the same condition, people. Sin. In that way, it is the great equalizer. Every single one of us was born with the same condition, and there is one remedy for all of us, the gospel. That is it. And so we see here, this is a broad community. I want you to see again how Paul was able to connect with other believers because this is not a small point. Luke says that he was able to come to them because they were of the same trade. Luke says they had the same, dro- the same job. They were in the same profession, and that was that they were leather makers. And so what they did is they worked with leather and they made tents. This is what, again, makes our community broad, but it also shows the infinite wisdom of God. God has created every single one of us with all different gifts. He's created all of us with different abilities. 
But what he is doing with those gifts and abilities, which is such the grace of God, is that he is redeeming them and using them for his glory. But how? How is he doing it? He is placing us as believers in the world as it pleases him so that we could use our gifts for him to be his ambassadors wherever we are for us to find joy and contentment in the way that he has bent us and shaped us knowing that he placed us at that job no matter how miserable we may be because there are people around us who need to hear the gospel or he placed us where we are no matter how successful we may be to remind us that that job was never the means and that if that position is so high for you that you are not willing to risk that position for the gospel, what does it mean for you to be a Christian in the first place? See, what he's done is he's made us his ambassadors, but he is also creating within us a network by connecting us with people we otherwise wouldn't have even been connected with. This is one of the reasons when I'm talking to kids at the school and they're trying to figure out where should I go to college? What should I get a degree in? What, what should I do? And I say, do what God has placed you on this earth to do. It doesn't matter how much money you expect to make. God will take care of all of that. But God has designed and created every one of us to share and communicate the gospel in a way that he's gifted us. And the unfortunate reality is that we tend to pick jobs and careers and schools that are more bent towards our idols and not bent towards the gospel. But God has bent you the way that he has bent you because it pleases him. In 1 Corinthians 12 and 4, it says, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. This is the confirmation, but this is also what makes Christianity so amazing and so unique. In one sense, when we come to him, we absolutely are forsaking who we were in the flesh, our past life, our past values. We are absolutely dying to all of that. But what God does, which is so gracious, is that he says that all the ways that he, we have been gifted, all the ways that he has bent us and shaped us and gifted us, that he will use those gifts and now he will give them meaning and purpose in our lives. This is one of the things I tell the kids at the school a lot. I say, y'all think I was good with words before I was a Christian? You better believe it. Do you think I was using those words for the glory of God at all? Absolutely not. But what God has taken is he's taken my wicked, dark heart and the same ability I had to use my words to lie and manipulate, he now uses for his glory. Same gift, different purpose. In our own congregation, as I would assume about this congregation, is we have in our, our church, we have physical therapists, we have nurses, 
business owners, grant writers, bankers, retirees, and sometimes I think, am I the only one as the pastor of the church who knows this? See, it isn't a community just because we have all these people, right? It isn't a community because we have a collection of individuals who all are talented and gifted. It becomes a community when they start to fellowship with one another and those gifts become a service to one another, but also a service to the people who don't know the gospel. So what are some things that disrupt that community? What are some things that disrupt us from sharing the gospel? As much as I'm a man for many words, there's really one word that would probably encapsulate it all, and it's selfishness. That's it. The reason why we haven't brought in our communities, the reason why we're not sharing the gospel is because we're selfish. I mean, that's, that's really the case. It's the idea that our things are just our things. I actually think that this is one of the things that the early church mastered is that they didn't think that their things were just their things. In Acts 4 and 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. I was able to write an article for the Gospel Coalition talking about will the church be able to return. And this was the, the, the main scripture that I used to talk about that is it's like the reason why the church has kind of devolved into the place that it's in is because for the last few years, we've been encouraging people into isolation and individualism. And you can still be a part of the church and be at home and watch virtually and do that stuff. And during the pandemic, you know, you can have church at home and that's fine. That's, that's normal. And then we said, no, that's not normal. Come back to church. We want you to come back to church. And people were like, no. Why would I come back to church when I can do it from home? And you told me that I could do it from home. That's actually one of the other issues, like even with small groups, right? Small groups sometimes, if they're not done the right way, are a collection of similarly minded people in a broad church saying, okay, where are all the married people? Where are all the people with multiple kids? Where are all the single people? Let's all have a small group together. And so you take the broadness of the church and then you shrink it down. That's what disrupts community. When the church was established, there was a sense of community because there was a sense of indebtedness that believers felt towards one another. And in such an oppressive rule, in the face, in the threat of death, you know what they had? All they had were the other Christians. They relied on each other, and they strengthened one another. And it was organic that the people they most wanted to spend time with was other believers. But one of the challenges that we can face in having community is that we tend to only want to do it on our terms. The same people God gave us to broaden our communities are the same people that we tend to only want to be a part of it. And so this broad community then becomes insulated. So if you're a hand in the body of Christ, right, then you're only having community with the other hands. And if you're a foot, who wants to be a foot? But if you're a foot, 
in the body of Christ. You're like, where are all the other feet? And the eyes are hanging with the eyes. But when, what ends up happening is that it's like, I have no need for the other members of the body. Let me find all the people that look like me, think like me, work where I work, have the same income that I have, the same neighborhood, the same family that I have, and let me make community with those people. And then we wonder, well, why is, why is the gospel not being spread? Because we don't want to. <laughs> it's too uncomfortable. It makes me remember when I was having a conversation with my 13-year-old son. So I have four kids, 13, four, will be two. One will be two in uh, February 24th and then nine months. So house is crazy all the time. And so sometimes I'm like, just like the 13-year-old, like, I just need you. Just like you be good, you know. But, of course, he's 13, so he's not. <laughs> and so we're having a conversation one day, and, you know, he had really been getting in trouble at the school. He's at Restoration. So Restoration, as you know, is a private school. I'm the director of spiritual formation there. And we've got about 300 kids, and it's a lot different. He had been at another private school. And one day he's like, like, it's, like it's, just, it's just hard there. You don't understand. I'm like, dude, I've been working there for four years. I understand, like, what's going on? He's like, it's just not like my other school. I was like, well, I know that, but, like, why do you say it's not like your other school? He's like, man, those, those kids are sinners, man. <laughs> like, like, yeah, so are you. What are you talking about? Like, and then I started to realize, I said, Alex, you have to see, you know, at your other school, like, they wanted to keep it insulated. Like, that's the case. Like, all of the parents, like, we all drove similar cars, and we were all, you know, at the same kind of economic bracket, and we all professed to be Christians and were part of a church, and, and the kids signed a covenant that they were a part of the church. I said, so, yeah, that was a smaller school, and, yeah, the kids looked more like you and acted and spoke more like you're accustomed to. I said, but at Restoration, we're in the middle of a desolate neighborhood, where the prosperity gospel has taken hold of that community because they are predatory, because they find low-income communities, because that's the way that they build their little kingdoms. They take prey, the people in those communities who are impoverished, right? And they give them this false hope that if you believe hard enough, if you give all your money to us, you're going to be fine. You're going to get out of this poverty. And so they chase this pipe dream while they build their kingdom. And it takes hold of those communities. And those kids almost never hear the gospel until you have faithful people like Urban Hope who are willing to plant their church in the middle of the cesspool of sin. It's like, no, there at least is a ray of light in a world of weariness, as Willy Wonka said. And then shines the light of the gospel. And I told him that's our mission is that we're not trying to insulate it from those people. We're trying to let them in so they can hear the gospel. Because the reason they are where they are is not because of all the disproportionate realities of racism. It's because of sin. And there is the one thing that's going to heal every heart. It's the gospel. But see, the, the problem with that is that because we're trying to broaden the community of Christianity, it makes my son really, really uncomfortable. Because now he's hearing people talk in a way that we don't talk. He's hearing people describe events before their eyes that he's never seen before. And it's shaking his world. But you know, that's what happens when we invite people to hear the gospel. 
is that our ivory towers that we built to protect ourselves, they start to crumble. And that brings us to our second point. It's similar to the first one, but it's different. The Christian community is diverse. So the first point is that the Christian community is broad, but the second one is that the Christian community is diverse. And it's, it's broad in the sense that it actually does reach across several different professions and gifts and abilities and talents, but it's actually diverse in the people who make up that community. And listen, I know diverse or diversity is like the hot button word for liberals. I don't mean it that way. I don't mean it in like the most shallow terms. Like we tend to think, okay, are there differently colored people? Okay, that's what defines the diversity of a church. But no, I don't mean it like that. I mean diverse in the most God-honoring way. My wife and I are both black, but we come from very different diverse backgrounds. So if we're only limiting diversity to the shade of somebody's skin, we're actually more shallow than the people who don't have diversity. In Galatians 3 and 7, it says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The promise to Abraham was that through him, all the nations of the world would be blessed and it would be through our faith in Jesus Christ. Here is the redeeming quality of the gospel where it takes peoples, right, and it makes us a people. That's what the world tries to do, by the way, when there's all of these agendas, critical race theory, and we're all different, and all this crap that goes out. What it doesn't realize is that it doesn't matter if you're white or if you're black. If you're not a Christian, you're not a part of any race. You are not a people. That's actually what 1 Peter tells us before. You were not a people, but he has made us one. So now there is neither in him Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. We are all one. In Christ. That is the fulfillment of the gospel where we shed all the agendas of this world and we just go out and we reach people for the sake of the truth, not for the sake of their skin. Which, by the way, you can't say anywhere now. He gives us this random collection of individuals, the sameness of mind, the sameness of spirit, and he gives us one goal and one purpose, which is to serve him and see him glorified in the earth. Listen, we think about the fulfillment of the kingdom. We have to acknowledge that it will only be perfected in eternity, but we should pursue the diversity of the kingdom while we are here on earth. Now, how do we pursue that diversity? Really, it starts with proactivity on our parts. Look, there doesn't need to be this big plan, this big agenda. Sometimes it's going across the street. Do you know your neighbor? Is your neighbor a Christian? If they're not, have you shared the gospel with them? Do you hate that neighbor? Is it because they're a sinner? You know the remedy for that would be the gospel, right? Do we ever think about it like that? 
Many believers will complain about community not coming to them, but we're not actually going and doing anything. If the charge for evangelism is that we go and make disciples preaching the gospel all over the world, then doesn't it stand to reason that we fulfill the gospel by doing the exact same thing? Every now and again, not often, but every now and again, sometimes, I'll be at home and like there'll be a sock on the ground, right? And I'm like, man, that's really annoying. Somebody left a sock there. Somebody should pick that up. Like, who left that sock there? And so I walk around a few hours have passed. I'm like, okay, sock's still there. Like, is no one going to pick the sock up? This is the way I am. And so finally, after like a few hours of frustration, I go to my wife. I'm like, Christy, you didn't see that sock on the ground? And she was like, no, did you pick it up? <laughs> I'm like, that's not the point. Like, that's not what I was saying. And then I realized immediately, like, the thing I was complaining about, I could have changed. I had a direct impact on whether or not that sock stayed on the ground or not, and I left it. Sometimes when we're complaining about a lack of diversity or a lack of community, or we're complaining about our center neighbors or our center family members, have you actually been the one to go to them with the gospel? When we complain about all the things that the world is doing and its agenda, what are we actually doing aside from standing on our political soapboxes? What are we actually doing to fight it, to combat it? I, I, I'm against abortion as, as much as anybody. I think it's such a wicked thing for somebody to do to a child. But at some point, somebody has to go talk to the mother. Like most of what we want to see changed in the world is going to be us taking the gospel to people we normally would not even notice. Much of what we're going to want to see happen in the church and in the world is going to require us being proactive and just doing what needs to be done. How are we inviting people in our homes? How are we getting together with other members of the church and not waiting for an announcement and choosing to create fellowship? How are we com creating community where it doesn't exist? Or do we just ask the qualifying questions? Where, where does he work? Where do they go to school? Why is she divorced? Why is he a sex offender? Eh, why do they only have one car? Do we just ask all those qualifying questions to give an excuse for why we don't share? Ephesians 5 and 15, it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That brings us to our third and final point, 
Community is the health of the church. Community is the health of the church. This final point may be the most important one of the entire sermon, mainly because, you know, as a church plant, and I know this was a church plant, like you have all these different metrics, right, where you're trying to decide, like, is this church working? Is this church successful? And all of those numbers tend to be around, like, okay, how many people do you have coming to church? You know, who's listening to the podcast? I do that more than anybody. Like, I always pull out podcast numbers. Who's watching the sermon? And we start to judge whether or not this is a good, healthy, successful church. But I'm going to tell you like this. As you know, the most popular churches in the world are not churches, are they? The most well-attended churches are not churches. They're gatherings of people who have the same mind, who come together to worship the same God that they have created for themselves, but not the true God. So that can't be the singular metric for the success of the church. So what's a good metric? Is it a community? Within that community, do you share the gospel? How are you making your life uncomfortable for the faith? Seriously. I asked the question at the beginning, why do we think Christians in other countries are more bonded and and more held together than we are? Because they're putting their life on the line. When is the the last time we did anything that would risk any part of our lives for the sake of the gospel? I mean, being realistic, some of us won't even drive in certain neighborhoods because we fear something may happen. We won't share the gospel in the prospect of death, yet we have people facing the certainty of it. And they don't cower. They don't bow down. They share it anyway. Ephesians 4 and 1, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. For grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. A church is only healthy when that church comes together as a community and commits itself to sharing the gospel at any cost, at any cost. Now, that's one of the beautiful things that we are able to do as you all are supporting ministries like Serving You or Urban Hope or Restoration, is that you are allowing us, the other members of the body, to be those hands and feet where you may not go. That is the beauty of what God has done with our community, is that he has given us ministry partners who are all a part of the body of Christ. Because of what you do, your commitment to support Before service, somebody asked me about being a tutor. Stuff like that, you think it doesn't have an impact. That stuff matters to those kids. And to you, it may be tutoring. 
But to them, it is an opportunity to learn where they may be struggling, to have somebody take one-on-one time that they normally don't get from where they're from. Somebody willing to go somewhere, drive somewhere they normally wouldn't go and be an extension of the church's reach with the gospel. So, no, I'm not calling all of us to jump and move to the worst neighborhoods and go there. I don't live in the worst neighborhood, although our police department has been in the news lately. Brookside police, just I apologize. But one of the things that that I've learned is that God gives us gifts and people and ministries to go some of those places where we'll never go. To fund missions for places that we've never been. You can still have an impact on people. There are kids every year being saved because of the support of churches like this. And you may never have a clue until you meet them in eternity. Say, I was saved because somebody at this school shared the gospel. And you think, I was giving $50 a month. I was going over there leading a small group. I had no idea the impact. And so I'll leave you with this. How are you willing to disrupt your comfort? To see the Christian community broadened? How are you willing to forsake what makes you who you are, your friends, your community, your neighborhood, and go into places where those people may not know the gospel and committing to sharing the gospel? That's what makes the church a community. That's what grows our community. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you have given us all, God, a variety of gifts, diverse gifts, diverse talents, and you've given us partners, groups, ministries, God, that are doing some work that we may never do, but God, that also doesn't let let us off the hook. You've called us to all go into the world and make disciples, sharing our faith, being willing to be uncomfortable like you were uncomfortable. There Jesus is hanging on the cross, enduring in our place the wrath that God intended for us for all of eternity. He discomforted himself so we could have eternal comfort. So God, that means that we should be willing to temporarily on this earth discomfort ourselves knowing that we'll have our comfort and our eternity secure with you. And the reality is, God, is that at any threat, no matter what the case may be, whomever we face in sharing the gospel, while they may be able to kill our body, our soul belongs to you. There is nothing that any enemy can do to snatch us out of your hand that can separate us from your love. With that being the case, give us what we need to go where we ought to go, to say what we ought to say, so that people who don't know you can know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.